Third time's the charm. Three is a magic number. Hello, and welcome to Third Time's a Charm, the show that takes an in-depth look at the third installment of a franchise. This is episode 37, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. I'm your host, Captain Mike, and welcome to another Out of This World episode. That was my Shatner impression, everybody. Anyway, I've got a full bridge today on the show with my very own Kirk, Spock, and Bones along for the ride. Beaming up first from the Great Contenders podcast is Tobin Addington. Returning from last month's debacle of Beverly Hills Cop 3 is Dan the Duke Hayden. And to round out this landing party is Dan of the Dead Cologne. Together we search for Spock to reunite his mind with his body, and along the way we disobey Starfleet, tussle with some Klingons, and much, much more. So pack your bags, because we're heading to the unstable Miracle Planet Genesis to retrieve our reincarnated and acceleratedly aging Vulcan best friend from certain doom. Be me up. third time's a charm tonight's episode is jam-packed i've got a full bridge tonight i've got a kirk i've got a mccoy i've got a spock well we're looking for spock so maybe there's a Chekhov or a scotty we'll sort it out let me get it on right away with some introductions here first up he is mostly known as my horror consultant after tonight he may also be my christopher lloyd consultant please welcome back dan cologne dan welcome back mike thanks for having me absolutely thanks for going on this trek with us tonight also joining me he was just on my beverly hills cop 3 episode i feel like this is uh, a way of sort of making it up to him right away, having him back on for something a little bit better. Please welcome back Dan the Duke Hayden. Dan, welcome. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me back. And yes, this completely makes up for Beverly Hills Cop 3. Well, I'm glad I could beam you aboard that you even would come back after that episode. Someone else who hasn't been on in a long time, actually, returning not since the Jurassic Park 3 episode way back when this all first started. You might know him from his very own podcast with his sister called The Contenders. Please Please welcome Tobin Addington. Welcome, Tobin. Hey, I feel bad that my name's not Dan. Mike, come on now. It's Ensign Dan, and then uh, I guess just regular Dan. Lieutenant Dan, obviously. So obvious that I missed it. It was right in front of my face. But guys, thank you all for coming. You're all here because uh, you're all Trek fans, maybe to varying degrees, from casual to Trekkie to Trekker. Right away, before we get into this movie here, I just want to get into a little bit of your backstory with Trek. Starting with Dan the Duke Hayden, if you wouldn't mind going into a little bit of your history with Trek, how big a fan are you are you a trekkie i don't know if i've ever self-identified as a trekkie i am a huge huge star trek fan i remember my dad watching the original series and next gen when i was very very little i remember sitting down and after boy scout meetings sitting down and watching ds9 and, and voyager with my dad as those shows came out and i think i remember finding like 
going back and watching all the original movies and series, you know, in my early teens or maybe even like maybe even a little before that. But I have always loved Star Trek and everything that it stands for to varying degrees of the different shows that, you know, it's it's become because some are obviously a lot better than others and some movies are a lot better than others. But yeah, I, I love Star Trek. Awesome. You know, as a child, I would say I was a Star Wars kid, but Star Trek became pretty important to me as like a teenager. And from then on. Tobin Addington, can you give us a little bit of your history with Star Trek? To what degree of a fan are you? Where does your history begin? Yeah, I am a fan for sure. And and for a long time, I saw this movie in the theaters, which I suppose we'll get to. So did I. I'm just throwing it out there. I was there too. All right. All right. And I was also like a Star Wars, big Star Wars kid as, as a kid. I, there weren't many of us, I remember, who were sort of into both that, that I knew of anyway at my schools. I was a big enough fan that in sixth grade, I... I was given a uniform, a next generation uniform, and went to a convention. Oh. Yes. I was actually going to bring this up later. I was going to ask if anybody has been to one, but please proceed. I have been to a Star Trek convention. It was a lovely time. And uh, we went over to uh, Spokane, Washington. <laughs> to uh... Cross state lines. Right, cross two state lines to get there. I was next generation was is my jam. That's where it all really came together for me. And I I've not seen any of the series after DS9. Not for any I don't it wasn't avoiding them. I just sort of life intervened as I got older. But I yeah for sure I consider myself a uh, we called ourselves Trekkies back in the day. I realize the name has changed over time, but yeah for sure I I consider myself a Trekkie. Now can you go as far as to name like um, like episodes and titles and and writers? Are you are you that well versed? Are you that deep into the Back in the day, at least, would you, would you have been able to like, oh, this guy wrote that episode or this is I'm not going to quiz you tonight. Well, I remember at the convention, there was like a quiz deal to give away prizes and stuff. And the even in sixth grade, I was like, holy shit, I came as the nerd from, you know, from school and realized what real nerddom is, you know, tip a hat to those people who know all the details. I'm enough of a fan that I cried myself to sleep when Tasha Yar died in Next Generation. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention to episode titles or like all that. That, all that sort of inner stuff. I was, it was, I was a deep casual fan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So like in high school, I got hooked with Next Generation as well. I had a friend who would wear his Starfleet shirt to school sometimes. He got me into Star Trek, I'd say. And then Voyager, I've seen every episode of Voyager. Uh, that was really my show. I've seen most of Deep Space Nine. And then I've, I've since gone back, you know, and seen the original series and loved that too. Haven't been to a convention. Would have loved to have gone to one back in the day. Now I just don't know. Uh, the fandom just seems different. My sister, Aislinn, has been to conventions recent, more recently than I, for sure, and has ha I think has had a great time. I met Patrick Stewart, and so you should think about it. Next time uh, we can all have conventions. I don't know when that's going to be, but uh, you're off the hook till then. Now, Dan Colon, can you go into a little bit of your history with Star Trek? To what degree are you a fan? Yeah, I'm realizing listening to the rest of you that I think I'm the most casual Star Trek fan in this group. Star Trek has always been in my life. My dad was a big fan. So I, like as a kid, he introduced me to Star Wars and Star Trek was so I became a big fan of that. But Star Trek was always on like it was the 90s. So Next Gen was kind of the thing that we had on then Deep Space Nine and Voyager. So I was sort of uh, tangentially familiar with Star Trek. To this day, I'm not very well versed, but I have a deep appreciation 
appreciation for it from from what I was exposed to. I think what really catapulted my Star Trek fandom, because like I have been meaning to like really dive back into the shows, but the thing that really kicked it off for me was Wrath of Khan. When I saw that, I was so blown away by that because it, it works on so many levels. I tell people it's not only maybe the best Star Trek movie ever made, but it also ranks pretty high in my list of like greatest science fiction films of all time. Mm-hmm. I think you can come to that movie not knowing anything about Star Trek, and it's a fucking good movie. When I realized, oh, this is what Star Trek is, then what I had absorbed almost through osmosis by being in the same house while it was on TV, like, I was like, oh, okay, this is really cool. So over the years, I've been meaning to, like, really sit and watch the original series, and here and there I'll watch an episode of Next Gen. But I would say that my knowledge and and fandom of Star Trek mostly comes from the movies and probably because I can digest a movie in two hours as opposed to committing to a whole series. Truth be told, that's probably what it is that's keeping me from really fully ingesting because it's a tall order to ingest multiple seasons of a television show, whereas, you know, I can get my Star Trek fix with two hour movie here, two hour movie there. And, you know, I kind of get everything that I like from that. It's definitely on the docket going forward, but I would say these first couple uh, movies with the original cast are really what I love. Yeah, I think the Star Trek film series, the original cast, like the original crew film series, is smarter than it's even ever given credit for, and it is really remarkable in what it's able to pull off in certain films, like Wrath of Khan, for instance. Like I just have a really deep appreciation for the entire series consistent continuity the idea that it mines the tv show for ideas for its movies and are sort of doing sequels to episodes Mm -hmm. and and sort of refurbishing ideas that they've worked over before because a lot of those original series episodes are sort of like i've noticed you know they visit a lot of planets that are sort of stuck back in time and and they sort of do that episode till they get it right or perfect (laughs) and there's a lot of episodes where like you know the changeling for instance is very much like v'ger where it's like this probe that's been sent off and found by an alien race and reprogrammed and all this kind of stuff and there's even tribbles popping up in this episode and references and things that have continued over from Wrath of Khan. It's 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 a more of a direct sequel to Wrath of Khan than it even is maybe a part three in this series so far. The movies are a terrific sort of continuation and kind of gateway into the rest of the Star Trek universe. Yeah, for sure. And 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 I had not seen Space Seed before I had seen Wrath of Khan. So like I mean that tells you right there, you don't even have to have seen the original episode that, that builds off of. And then I went back and watched that episode and I thought, okay, this is a this is a good episode of Star Trek. It didn't blow my mind, but it's it's interesting how that episode that's just you know kind of an okay episode it developed into this incredible film you know like i don't know how the hell that happened but i'm so grateful for it oh definitely so transitioning to this movie which is pretty fascinating if i may use that term i want to give a little plot summary really quick before we start getting into this because uh, it'll just give us sort of like a little idea of what's going on here as i'm just going to recall off the top of my head directly after wrath of khan spock is dead the crew is in mourning. They are on their way back to Earth. The Enterprise has been decommissioned. It has seen its final day in space. The crew has been separated back on the planet. Everybody's sort of depressed. Kirk is visited by Spock's father, Sarek, and says, why have you not brought Spock's body back to planet Vulcan yet and performed 
the mind meld because clearly he has stuck his consciousness into your body before he died, right? And Kirk has no idea what he's talking about. Turns out that Spock has put his consciousness into McCoy. So the plan now is to take McCoy to Vulcan with Spock's body, but it has been burned up in orbit around the planet Genesis, or has it, because Kirk's son David and the Vulcan Savik are on planet Genesis doing experiments where they have come across a child version of Spock who is now somehow in link with the planet Genesis and evolving at a rapid pace, growing back into an adult as the planet itself is being torn apart, evolving quicker than it should have because David screwed up with the Matrix of something, we'll get into it. All the while, a Klingon, Kirk, has discovered the planet Genesis and wants the power as a doomsday device, a weapon to rule the galaxy, the universe. So the crew of the Enterprise actually boost the ship, take it to Genesis, try to rescue Spock. David is killed. It's a very emotional moment for Kirk. They fool the Klingons by surrendering the Enterprise, all the while beaming down to the doomed planet when the Enterprise explodes. It is gone. It has been sacrificed. They are stuck on the planet, but then they trick the Vulcans into beaming them up. Kirk faces off with Krug. Kurup, Kruger, Kurg. We'll get it sooner or later. And he dies on the planet in a great old-fashioned Star Trek duel. Kirk then takes the Klingon bird of prey to Vulcan with his crew, where they perform the ritual on the mountain. Spock mind is put back into his body. The end, he recognizes Jim and his friends, and that is the end for now. Little do they know, they're going to be traveling back in time, saving some whales in a few minutes. (laughs) That is a whole other episode. Let's start off with some initial thoughts. I mentioned that uh, I did see this in theaters, and as a little kid, I was like five or six years old, I remembered liking it. I think this was the first exposure I really had to Star Trek, where someone sat me down and said, watch this Star Trek stuff and I thought it was cool but I also distinctly remember grumbles and murmurs while leaving the theater like the adults were not happy but dude why don't you start us off where does this sort of rank within Star Trek and like, what are your initial feelings about it? I like Search for Spock I don't remember if I really liked it as a kid I definitely wouldn't put it close to the top but I definitely put it pretty middle of the road as far as these movies go not for any particularly bad or good reason there's a lot about this movie I really enjoy I like that it's very very character driven my favorite parts are a lot of the one-liners and the things that you know that these characters would say after spending so much time with them you just expect them to have certain qualities and certain things that just come out of their mouths i love christopher lloyd as the villain in this it definitely would be somewhere in the middle of the road it's interesting that you say, you know, that they sort of feel like themselves. I think that works for two reasons. Like, one, this kind of expects you to know these characters a little more. And since most people have seen Wrath of Khan are coming into this, they can just be themselves. They don't really have to develop too much. And I think the other aspect is that Leonard Nimoy is directing this, right? Yes. And so, like, he has lived with this, like, for so much of his life that he knows these characters inside and out. A lot of that is really coming through on the screen. I think it works well with Nimoy directing, especially because, like, 
like he takes such a backseat. I mean, he doesn't really show up until the very end of the movie besides, you know, the flashbacks from Wrath of Khan. So I think maybe the fact that he was able to step away from being the character and focus more on directing, maybe that's why the cast seems to be flowing so well with each other. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Like the idea that Spock isn't really in the movie until the very, very end, you know, yet the movie focuses and centers around his character is sort of um, very fortuitous for it's like a very unusual special kind of thing i feel like it could only exist in this moment because like you know it's so it's such a weird idea but it's working here that like the director of the character who's not in the movie yet it's about is making the movie and he's pulling it off so what about you tobin how do you feel about this one where does it sort of rank for you in the star trek films i had such a similar experience to the one you described of seeing it in the theater as a little kid and i I probably would have liked any movie i saw right being at the theater was cool so that in addition then then it's it's taking place in space and then it's with these characters that I have some familiarity with so I was I was on board and I since then watching it now if, if you'd asked me before I rewatched it for this episode what I thought of it I would have said oh I think that's probably one of the ones that's not very good. And I think that's just through sort of, I don't know, cultural osmosis. Because as, as I watch it, I realize that I watched this movie a lot on, it wasn't, they weren't laser discs, but they were, it was a home video disc system. Oh, you had that? I've only seen that once. Wow. Oh, we had it. And I, and I had, we had this disc. And so as I was watching, I'm like, oh my God, I know shots from this movie. I know lines from this movie. Like it, it's buried in my like reptile brain from my, you know, like pre-adolescence. So I had that nostalgia hit as, as I'm watching it, which I enjoyed. I think that the ideas in this movie are more uh, successful than maybe the execution of all of them. I love the idea that they have to steal their own ship back. I love the idea that it's this stripped down crew. It's like centers just on, you know, our kind of our core heroes. I love that they have to blow up the Enterprise. So much of this, this movie is about death and rebirth, right? Like we're having the planet is going from dead to alive to dead again in some way. And the whole movie, you, you can see that this movie is like solving the puzzle of, oh my God, we killed off one of our favorite characters and we need to get them back. How are we going to do it that's not you know like the dumbest way possible and and i think that they were able to kind of find a few interesting thematic things to say about death and rebirth and and sort of weave that into the rest of the story so all that stuff i think worked really well there are other things that i did that i don't think worked as well those things i don't i didn't pick up on as a kid those are the things that i think i appreciate more now it's interesting while i watched it this time around because i'd actually been waiting to watch this movie for three years which when I started this show because I actually <laughs> like this one quite a lot. Like this might be, I might like this one more than four. Like it might go two, three, four, one, six, five, something mm. like that. But I realized now I have a certain word in my vocabulary. I never, I hadn't, you know, when I was a teenager and that word is retcon. And this movie does one of the most elegant retcons, <laughs> I think in film or whatever to kill off one of your main characters. Right. And not even let that death sit. But to bring him back the very next movie, like sort of the gall, but like also the corner you're backed into because everybody's on board to do this idea. So how do you get away with it without it feeling cheap? And just the nature of the Vulcan character opened up this sort of cheat of being like, oh, this like Vulcan power, the sir, they have mind powers. The It's more than a mind meld. It's like that on the next level. Like, of course they could transfer their consciousness from one vessel to another. That makes perfect sense to me, you know, even today. And especially if you have to try and figure out a way to 
do something like this to bring a character back to life. I think that is like one of just, you know, the hardest and often things uh, attempted in a lot of different mediums and stuff. So just on that level alone, I was very impressed with its abilities here. Totally. Dan Cologne, the most casual fan here. Have you seen all of the Star Trek versus the original crew movies? Um, where does this rank with you? Uh, I know you love Wrath of Khan. Is this a worthy sequel to Wrath of Khan? The ones I'm most familiar with are like that trilogy of part, uh, two, three, and four, right? I love kind of that whole arc. For a long time, this one was kind of the one that I I watched this this one the least probably. Rewatching it now, I, I I can remember why I felt the way I felt. One of the most brilliant things they could have done with Wrath of Khan is to kill Spock. That was like the most ballsy of ballsy moves ever. And uh, I think that's one of the things that makes that movie so great is that they had the guts to, to do that. And then instead of letting Spock be dead for a little while and like letting us sit with that and, and trying to find other stories to tell without him. And then, of course, you know, bringing him back. I kind of don't love that they bring him back immediately. I kind of would have liked to have seen a Star Trek without Spock for a little while, just so that his return would mean so much more at that point, right? Instead, they they kill him and immediately... I mean, it, it's a retcon, right? You're, you're right. You're spot on with that. And, I, and I, you can make the case that it was a good thing the way they did it, or the way I feel is that Maybe they should have let him be dead. It always feels too soon to me. And this movie does have a lot of really cool ideas in it, like Tobin was saying, you know, about death and rebirth. And I think a lot of that stuff is really cool. But I don't think this movie has enough substance otherwise to really work as a standalone movie. In a situation like this, I would typically, you know, watch it with Wrath of Khan and then I'd watch Voyage Home, you know, kind of put it in the context. I've done that so many times that I wanted to watch it just by itself. And it became so much more apparent to me that this movie really is connective tissue to get us from Wrath of Khan to Voyage Home. I think it would be a pretty cool episode of TV. I don't know that it works as well as a movie. Because if it's 1984 and you're only getting original series cast every couple years, you know, like anytime the movie comes out, you're psyched, right? You want to go to the theater and see it. And this didn't feel like a strong movie to me. It's connective tissue more than anything else, right? Like it's... Right. It's a stepping stone to get right. us to the next place, which begs the question, should this have been a movie? Right, right. It's interesting you say that. When the quarantine started a few months ago, I actually sat down and all right, this is going to sound really lame. One of the first things I wanted to do with my daughter, even though she would never remember it, is watch every single Star Trek movie. So I watched every single one of these movies for the first like two weeks that we were home and I couldn't sleep. And I have to say, like, I liked this movie a lot more yesterday. Having watched it with Rathacon and the movies after Voyage Home and Final Frontier and everything together, you're right. You just made me realize it's just perfect connective tissue. And that's probably why, like, if you had asked me what my rankings were for these movies yesterday, I probably would have put this movie a little bit higher. But now sitting here again today and just watching it on its own, you're right. It, it's a perfect hour and 45 minute episode of Star Trek. I knew that if I watched it in context with the rest of the story that I would probably do, like, I would rank it higher, right? Because it, it's not bad, you know? I mean, I got to spend an hour and 45 minutes with Kirk and Spock and, well, not with Spock, but with uh, Sulu and, and McCoy and, uh, and Chekhov, you know, like, that's never going to be a bad time, even if the movie's not that great. So I'm, I'm still enjoying myself, but, you know, I wanted to, since we, we were making the effort to, to watch it and come on here and talk about it, I wanted to just focus on this one movie. And that really underlined 
how much this movie kind of fails as a standalone movie. This is not a bad movie, and I think if you're going to be spending the day either binging episodes of Star Trek or watching six hours worth of movies, you know, like it kind of all evens out at the end of the day. This is just, as a movie, I don't think it, I think it could be a lot stronger. That's a trapping, not just a lot of part threes, but a lot of sequels. I mean, it's more apparent, I think, in part three, where they've sort of like mined everything that they wanted for, for the part two, where they have to really, you know, dig deep and figure out what to do for part three. But yes, by no means is this like standalone. Uh, I actually kind of like watching it on its own because of what you guys are saying of its nature of its sort of like this outside of not continuity but like it almost feels like outside the timeline like oh we just have to detour do this and then we're back on track but i also feel like we get half of the movie you want here dan where it's like the first half where everybody's back on earth and like do you want them sort of just like mulling around missing spock being like oh if spock was only here like i don't know that i necessarily need more mourning for Spock. I kind of like this idea where he's gone just this one movie and then he's back at the end. But I'm also thinking, what would you do? Like, could Kirk and his son David maybe go back in time and save the whales together during this episode and then go find Spock in the next episode? It's like, oh shit, we got to go check in on Genesis. Oh, it's exploding all of a sudden. Oh, look, like there's a Vulcan with no sense sort of wandering around on his own like somebody do something about this and then we can sort of play this one out there's definitely some really good stuff in here like i love the crew going rogue stealing the enterprise destroying the enterprise like that's all really cool stuff and i think it plays out exactly as it should you know kirk's not a guy who's ever played by the rules so i I, you know I, i love how this movie starts i wish the villain was more tied into the overall narrative I think that Christopher Lloyd is almost wasted in this role. Like, he's great with the scenes he has, but Kirk doesn't even realize he's a threat until most of the way through this movie. (laughs) And let's be honest, he's, like, not really a threat for someone like Kirk. And I gotta just say quickly, my favorite moment for Christopher Lloyd is the uh, you were only supposed to blow the bloody doors off moment. (laughs) He's like, just disable it, and the ship explodes, and he's like, you moron. Right. Oh, and and I was saying to my dad earlier today, because I told him I was going to be talking about this, you know, like, I mean, to jump ahead a little bit there's no way that kirk should have ever won in a hand-to-hand combat with a klingon you know like that just on paper doesn't work for me well he had genesis on his side right <laughs> like genesis sort of like opened up a crevice for him and- i guess but krug is is in that fight scene is maybe the most inept klingon that i've ever seen so i, I have a little bit of trouble buying that moment but yeah i, I kind of wish krug had been a more prominent villain in this film i think that's one of the things that does like doesn't help the movie be a movie you know it doesn't really have a villain until the end it actually it does have an amazing villain just to, to make a quick comment about the whole Krug thing sure. that you know it kind of feels like it's almost a cat and mouse game you're right like kirk is always one more step ahead of him but i still kind of am having little vibes like balance of terror vibes near like the exchange between the two of them and it's really really hard to get past the fact that kirk obviously just seems like he's one step ahead of them and the fact that mark leonard is also in this episode who played the romulan commander in Balance of Terror. <laughs> so the whole time I was watching that exchange between the two of them and thinking like, oh yeah, man, Christopher Lloyd's getting his ass kicked. Can Mark Leonard just like turn into the Romulan commander and start foiling Kirk for the love of God? Also in this movie, Miguel Ferrara. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I caught him. And an unrecognizable Klingon John Laroquette, which I had to look up <laughs> because I did not find him in this either. But yes. 
I agree with all of the uh, Krug stuff. Like, he feels a little like Khan minus the revenge. Now he's just this guy who's like, oh, there's a powerful weapon that I can obtain, and then I will be powerful. Maybe, you know, I'll go take over the Klingon home planet, and then I'll take over the rest of the galaxy, whatever kind of thing. Whereas, like, what it worked for Khan was like, yeah, like, it would be nice for him to have Genesis and control of that, but really he wants Kirk. Yes. And without Kirk, there's nothing. And so there's just not a lot of sort of stakes here. Maybe if he had kidnapped David immediately and there was something more going on with that, then when David gets murked, that would sort of feel deeper because I don't really get much of a relationship here. Like, I don't even think Kirk knew that David was still on Genesis for crying out loud and like what's up with his mom Where, where's Dr. Marcus who knows where she's off to you know there, there's just sort of ways about some of these characters to maybe fit in a little better or flesh out a little more and it would have sort of diverted away from it feeling more like just connective tissue perhaps right like if there was a little more exploration of the newer characters since Star Trek is so good about like character development and stuff like if we had maybe developed Savick a little more like I know we don't have Kirstie Alley Kirstie Alley yeah, we don't have Kirstie Alley, but she's still a great idea of a character. We just needed to take her somewhere else this movie, and I just feel like she's kind of rotating in place for the most part. Yeah, the villain here isn't integrated into all these thematic concerns that are going on in the rest of the movie. And so he's he's not tied to any of that, and they, and so ends up being generic apart from being played by Christopher Lloyd and having this, like, crazy pet. Like, these are the two things that make any difference. You could imagine a version of the movie where he was a character who had been somehow infected by something Genesis-like or part of the Genesis Project earlier and was, you know, deteriorating at a rapid rate or... And so was kidnapping Kirk's son in order to try and figure out how to put himself back together or make himself super sold or whatever. I don't know what. But because there was none of that, he's just, he just purely is like, oh, there's a thing going on. I'm going to go check this out. Oh, okay. This is going on. This could make me really powerful. And there's, there, as you say, there's no stakes to it because he's not, he's not integrated into the, into the rest of the, the thing. And Kirk's son, like, I think there's too much. I understand you're wanting to do death and rebirth and all the, and grief and all this stuff. But Kirk is so much more effective by Spock's death, possible death, than he is by his son's. Yes. It's like, don't do the son part. Like, don't have that be part of this. It doesn't need to be. You could do something else, you know? You're asking the movie to carry too much weight and yet not supporting it enough. And that's so it falls apart, I think, in, in those moments and then feels more thin than I think it, it could have felt. Yeah, and I think it could, it could have helped if Kirk and his son David had been in a scene together. <laughs> <laughs> they are physically separate the entire movie so you know not having that at least um, a, like a scene where they're interacting together really kind of doesn't help add any gravity to, to that moment right like totally yeah so we have, we have to remember it's been a couple years since wrath of khan so we're only kind of remembering oh right he has a son david and like they have zero father-son chemistry in this movie so when david is killed well, i don't think we as the audience really care all that much i know i really don't and you're right tobin like the death of spock was so much more more of a huge moment in Kirk's life. And then when his son dies, they, they try to make it into a moment. I, I don't think it worked. When they bring Spock back at the very end of the movie, I mean, Sarek even equates like the weight of his son to the same as the ship. He's like, oh, what, what cost? Your ship? Your son? And he's like, if I hadn't have tried, it would have been for my soul. Like bringing Spock back was way more important to me than my ship or my son. I mean, I, I understand that he's trying to speak about how he always is trying to, to figure out a way to help help his friends or, or figure out the best situation for his crew. But he, he really 
does not give a shit about his son. No matter how hard he hits the floor after trying to sit in the chair, <laughs> right. he does not give a shit about his son. It does come across as like an afterthought, and that's unfortunate as sort of one of these things, well, David is just kind of like he's responsible for Genesis, so like in a sense he kind of needs to be here, but I don't necessarily think he needs to be here if he's off on some other world testing Genesis on another thing or doing something else. Like if this was maybe Dr. Marcus herself, Ooh. it would have so much more gravity us because I got that Kirk and her relationship from Wrath of Khan way more than, you know, Kirk and David. Like, I feel like that would have done a lot more if David was off-world doing something else, and this was in her hands, and, you know, it was her and Savick. Um, or you could even just not even have them. You could just have the Klingons come in and destroy Red Shirt science team and take over the planet immediately, find Spock, and then just tighten it up like that. Then you actually have, like, oh, shit, like, you know, Krug has... Spock? Like, oh shit, like, what's he gonna do with him? Like, he wants the planet mm -hmm. and all this stuff, so. While there's, like, tons of all these, like, little plot holes and things going on, it's still kind of remarkable that, like, it, it all flows so quickly. I'm not thinking of any of this stuff as I'm watching it. None of this stuff is really jumping into my mind until we're talking about it afterward. That, at least, I think is sort of a plus to this kind of movie. Like, it is it is quick, it is short, it moves along. As soon as you're just kind of like, what? It's onto something else. It does very non-Star Trek things, but gets away with it because it ends up doing very good Star Trek things. One very un-Star Trek thing I was thinking of is sort of breaking bones out of prison mm -hmm. um, and just sort of stealing the Enterprise in general. And like that whole kind of like act that they put on and all that, like the movie deals with it very well, gets away with it, uses all the characters properly, mm -hmm. right? Everybody's sort of playing a role. It's like Ocean's Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, it's got its ins and outs and its ups and downs, but I, but I definitely um, still like it a lot. I want to sort of get into, I know I mentioned like, you know, there are some of these plot holes in this movie. None of them really do bother me, but there is one that kind of does bother me. And I feel like this is, for my money, the most missed opportunity. Initially, when they're all off to Genesis to recover Spock's body, they bring Bones along and they send Uhura to Vulcan to get ready for everything. Mm -hmm. My first question is, shouldn't they have sent Bones to Vulcan? Because that's Spock's mind, and if he gets killed, he's screwed. Like, you know, he's going to die, right? His consciousness isn't going to transfer again. And my other thing is, since they're bringing Bones along in the first place, did they miss an opportunity to have a McCoy-Spock thing where you have McCoy acting way more mm -hmm. like a Vulcan. Maybe having him even do an impression of Spock. Like, for God's sake, DeForest Kelly, like, knows like <laughs> Nimoy, I'm sure, like, really well enough to do a good impression, or at least his best. He does it once or twice. Uh, when Kirk finds him in Spock's quarters, he's, we get the voice of Spock, but he's just sort of, like, very stoic, and I'm like, he could probably do this. So I was wondering if, if you guys, I don't know who wants to start, but if anyone has any thoughts on on those points there well to do that the two voice thing like if they just ran with that for a little while they could have done some i mean for the life of me this and i know i said this before this movie has some amazing one-liners i think my favorite one-liner of this movie is that green-blooded son of a bitch revenge for all those arguments he lost <laughs> yeah they're like the ultimate odd couple on the show they are why couldn't they and, and i didn't even think about maybe they could have run with this more mike but they really should have just mm -hmm. like spock taking over the controls of the ship giving one of his very logical solutions through bones and bones disagreeing with him on the fly changing up his voice 
Is it a little maybe cheap? Maybe, but would it have been a lot of fun? I think that would have been a lot of fun, Mike. Damn it, Jim. I'm a doctor, not a Vulcan. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you did if you did the thing where McCoy goes to Vulcan, you then you, you could see some of those scenes that could be fish out of water stuff, too, as he's like, when is he Spock and when is he McCoy and how does he reconcile those two things in this like strange place and who could be with him? Like it could be a, you know, there could be a little two-hander there too. I hadn't thought about that either, but there's all kinds of opportunities that they've, that they've missed here. Mike, I see your point about maybe sending McCoy to Vulcan instead of Uhura, but you know, like first thing that comes to mind is do we really want a Star Trek movie without McCoy? DeForest Kelly is maybe my favorite actor in this cast and he's always the most fun for me to watch. Yeah, so I don't know that I would love that but I, I do kind of miss her as well because it's kind of a boys club this whole movie um i would have loved right. to have seen totally. her just just be be a female presence among that group i do love these ideas of, of mccoy having like sort of two brains you know and, and having to reconcile mm-hmm. that that would have been really fun to watch, just to see him not play Bones a little bit. That also feels like something they've done in the original series a few episodes, like where someone's brain got into another guy's brain and they have two brains. <laughs> right, or they're possessed or that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there's no better cast member except maybe Shatner who could really choose scenery with dialogue like that. You know what I mean? Totally, totally. DeForest totally. Kelly has it in him to really ham it up there. And, and man, we could have had that been awesome. It's tough because, you know, it's not like like Scotty Sulu and, and Chekhov, they're not really doing too much here either. Like, it's it's actually kind of remarkable that only, like, six of these guys are flying this starship on their own, where usually I see there's, like, a hundred people running around engineer, and there's all these people in the hallways. I, I imagine doing various things to keep the ship from crashing into, like, a rogue black hole or something, but, like, <laughs> Scotty's at the wheel. I got it kept in, like, don't worry. It's almost as if, like, almost too streamlined sometimes like that, where it's cool to hear. They're all saying things that should be coming out of their mouth, but once they kind of leave Earth, it's just kind of, like, out of their hands. They, they just sort of become crew again. I'm just sort of like leaning into things that are, I guess, not working more than that are working. But does anybody have anything else they want to mention that that did work for them a lot? That maybe like, you know, a favorite moment that we missed out on that we haven't talked about yet? Dan Colon, do you have like a favorite moment that you might want to mention or... I don't know that I have a singular favorite moment. Maybe it's, I mean, maybe during the, the, the climax uh, or, or just after the climax, Shatner getting that moment where he's dealing with that, that final Klingon and he's like, you know, I don't deserve to live. Fine, I'll kill you later. And then, you know, you said you were going to kill me. I lied. You know, like, like I love that, that dialogue. It's just the, the way it was delivered is just so perfect. But yeah, there's no major plot point here that really hits hard for me just because, you know, I, I feel like they wanted us to care more more than like they, they wanted us to do a lot of the heavy lifting instead of them do it so I, I, I don't think i don't think the plot really is what it needs to be but it does definitely have some great character moments and i think that's really ultimately what gets me through this movie like especially the, you know those that interaction i just mentioned all right but that's good more, more sort of like final thoughts than favorite moments which is fine Maybe we can do that now um tobin do you have any final thoughts about star trek 3 the search for spock maybe you want to mention something that we haven't brought up yet that's that's on your mind yeah i think overall Overall, as I said earlier, I I like this movie more than I thought I would. I rank it higher now than I would have otherwise. You know, one moment that stands out to me, it's a tiny, tiny thing, but it, it, it triggered such sense memories for me. There's a, a moment in the fight uh, between David and the Klingon where the Klingon pulls out his knife and like it like splits into three blades, like two little blades kind of whoosh out of it. And I have such memories of that knife and like imagining that knife and playing that knife. I don't know. I, I, ne- I would never have been able to, to, I would not have 
remembered it, had not seen it, but it, it just flooded back all these memories. Like, that's, for whatever reason, really stuck in my head when I was, you know, I don't know, six or seven or whatever when I saw this movie for the first time. And boy, it just, I it, the, the wave of nostalgia when that knife came out. What I had not noticed as a child was how bad so many of the special effects are in this movie, which, you know, it's it's the time period. It's part of the hoke of Star Trek. I don't begrudge it that. I don't, I'm not, I don't hold that against a movie from, you know, 1984 or whatever. But I certainly did not notice that stuff as a child. That knife, though, oh, that, that really sticks in my head. <laughs> if I'm ever at a convention, I'll be on the lookout. Seriously, seriously, I'd pay good money for that. The Klingon tri-blade, maybe? I don't know <laughs> yes. what you call it. Hand batless. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea if that's what it's called. It's just the first thing that popped in my head. It's actually called the Mokhtok. <laughs> <laughs> The one thing I wanted to mention in this, which I thought was hilarious because, uh, well, I'll tell you right now. Initially, when they get back to Earth, the, like, commander of Starfleet calls Genesis the planet. He goes, it's classified forbidden. It's just remarkable watching the original series. I like how, like, almost every planet ends up being classified forbidden that they visit. Like, <laughs> the very first episode is Talos Four, and it's classified forbidden, like, right away. And, you know, it's, like, one of my favorite things. I even was listening to a podcast called Mission Law podcast a few years ago where I was like re-watching the original series along with that show and I was like if I ever had a podcast about Star Trek I'm calling it that <laughs> yes that's awesome I'm gonna call it classified forbidden every planet they go to that's one thing that, that uh, I wanted to, to mention before we step out here but Duke how about yourself any final thoughts any final words about the search for Spock a couple of things. One thing, I always love the different fashions that the uniforms of things go through with uh, with Star Trek. The security officers are wearing, like, 1920s football player helmets <laughs> when they go to search yes. Spock's room. And I, I never noticed that before. Like, are these guys, like, looking to go, like, play some pickup football? Like, Well, it's kind of amazing to see any kind of sort of law enforcement like that in a Star Trek for me, right? Because isn't the whole idea that there really isn't like a military necessarily, there's Starfleet, but it's like exploration. It's I'm always a little shady about like the military. I know the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek is like full on gung-ho, like militaristic and everything, but I'm always a little shady about the original series in that regard. I think they're just like, they're security officers, but they just have like extra armor. Like one of the things that... Christopher Lloyd disintegrated one of his crew members with, maybe it can't puncture the football helmet. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I love Kirk's, like, bathrobe jacket in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to make sense of it earlier, and I really can't. I don't know if it has buttons or what. It just looks like a smoking jacket and a belt. <laughs> yeah. The red uniform jacket he's got looks like a little smoking jacket with a black belt. I like his big collar jacket because he's wearing it when he's on Earth. Yes. And then he takes it off when he's on the Enterprise, but then he puts it back on when they land on Genesis. <laughs> I'm like, wait, well, just bring his coat along. That's so great. He loves that coat. <laughs> and then DeForest Kelly's wearing an ascot this whole movie, which is awesome. The fashion all out with them in the future is just bizarre. Like, whatever McCoy is wearing to the space bar, basically the cantina scene, right? Like, he goes to try and find a ship and ends up talking to a weird alien and stuff uh, and then gets caught. I thought that was pretty funny. But it's as if they're dressing in the future 70s, like not even the 80s. It feels like the, the costume designer, the wardrobe department just like went back and was like, what didn't they use 
on the show when they landed on like gangster world or 70s world or let's just pull from the old wardrobe. You're not wrong. If you believe the Amazon Prime Video trivia, they recycled a lot of costumes in this in this show on in all kinds of ways. They did not make a lot of new costumes, this trivia point said. And I noticed it only because I would occasionally pause the movie and, and turn it on to see if see who the actors were in the scene. Like, is that really Miguel Ferrer? Oh, it really is. And one of the times they made the point that like these are leftover costumes from the show and the previous two movies that they've retrofitted or adjusted or whatever. So yeah, you're not wrong. That's that's like exactly I think what's what's going on. That's pretty cool. One thing that I noticed about all that too is like the crew is basically in their street clothes. Kirk and Scotty are the only ones wearing their sort of red uniform, but I, I'm pretty sure everyone else is just like whatever they were wearing. I know Sulu has that amazing jacket. He wears like a cape yes. and his arms through these holes. I don't know. My mind is just starting to drift now. Like I would love I would love a, a search for Spock fashion show. It would just be incredible. Even the even the Klingon uniforms are great. Um, and I love that little dog thing. I actually had a question about the Klingons, and, and Dan may have more uh, information on this, but like, I don't remember seeing Klingons in the original series, but again, I haven't watched much of it. Were there Klingons in the original series who looked like this? No, there, there weren't Klingons that looked like this. The first time they had the Klingons look like this was when the movie started coming out. Right. There wasn't much makeup on them in the original series. They all kind of looked humanoid. All the- they looked a lot like Vulcans. Yeah. Yeah, they, they were like Vulcans minus the pointy ears for the most part. Is this the first time we've seen this Klingon look in Star Trek? I think there's a Klingon in motion picture, yeah. Yeah, they were in the beginning, right? They got destroyed by V'ger in the opening of Star Trek The Motion Picture, yeah. And they have this look, yes. Got it, all right. I'm not gonna lie, I was a little confused with Discovery when they showed the uh, the new the new Klingon look for this. If you guys didn't know, in Discovery, even though it takes place before the events of the original series, the Klingons look really, really different. They look very much more monstrous than they, they do in the original series, and they look almost nothing like they do in in the next gen and these movies and the DS9 versions. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah, next gen is pretty much the standard by which I've been going by for my most of my life and stuff. And like even with the new movies with the the JJ Abrams like produced ones like the Klingons are only in them for a minute and they look drastically different. I've not watched any of the new stuff. I actually did watch Picard, but I did not like it. Uh, that's a conversation for a whole other day. <laughs> a conversation I'd like to have with you. <laughs> I get Discovery free through work, so I should really get on that, especially because it's free. Yeah. It's fun. Well, I just got to thank you guys again for coming on tonight. We're going to wrap it up here. Um, is there anywhere anyone would like anybody to find them online these days, starting with Toman Addington, I mentioned Contenders. Would you like to elaborate a little bit on the Contenders podcast? Yes, my sister and I have a show called The Contenders about uh, movies directed by and starring women who refuse to play by the rules. So come check us out through the Cage Club Network and hear us gab about movies made by women. And you can find us on Twitter at Contenders underscore pod. And you can find me ranting away on Twitter at Tobin Addington, all one word. Excellent. And I was on the Winter's Bone episode of that show. So check out that great movie. 
check out that episode afterwards. Dan the Duke Hayden, we do not have a Star Trek podcast together yet, <laughs> but until that day, is there anywhere you'd like people to find you online? Anytime you want to sit down and watch some Star Trek or talk Star Trek, I- I'm around. But until then, you can find me on a-, a whole host of different Cage Club episodes. But if you want, I've been doing some artwork. If anybody is a fan of American traditional tattoos or chalk art or just, you know, some amateur hobby crap, you can find me on Instagram at DannyDukes25. Excellent. And Dan Cologne, we have neither our Christopher Lloyd podcast or our Monster podcast yet. Until that day, is there anywhere you would like people to find you online? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Dan Cologne, all one word. Also on Letterboxd, same username. Yeah, you mentioned a Monster podcast. Hopefully that will get up and running. And still got to get Tobin to uh, join me on a Kenneth Branagh facial hair podcast. <laughs> yes, we have to. Yeah, it's got to happen. So if we can make that happen, my life would be complete. So (laughs) maybe coming soon. Love it. Well, everybody, live long and prosper. That's going to do it for this episode of Third Time's a Charm. Gotta thank my great guests for beaming aboard the show today. I had a fun time, and I'm glad we all survived, because none of us were wearing red shirts. Catch Tobin and his sister Aislinn over on the Contenders podcast. Stay tuned for that Monster Club podcast with Dan Cologne and myself one day soon. And last but not least, I can't wait to get Dan the Duke Hayden on again to discuss the two other Part 3 Star Trek movies, Insurrection and Beyond. Until then, you can find all back episodes of Third Time's a Charm and all the other shows on the network at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. I've started posting back episodes on my lonely Facebook page, so like that, and don't forget to write me at t-h-r-e-e at cageclub.me. Find this show on Stitcher or wherever podcasts are found. Subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. And until next time... Scotty, Bones, Spock. Three, that's a magic number. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three, they stubbing me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean?